Hello, this is Ruth Haley Barton, and you're listening to the Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership podcast. Once again, I'm here with my friend and colleague, Steve Weens, who is senior pastor of Genesis in, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. We are here discussing Lent and moving through the season of Lent, Lent for leaders with God in the wilderness. And before we get to today's conversation, I want to remind you that we will be hosting a Stations of the Cross prayer service virtually on Good Friday, April 15th. You're invited to join us. If you purchase the Stations of the Cross prayer guide, you will get a code that allows you to participate for free. And if not, you can just make a donation of any size and still join us on April 15th. We're looking forward to being with you there. Today we are moving into the sixth Sunday of Lent. We're reading into the sixth Sunday of Lent with scriptures from the Revised Common Lectionary, Cycle C. And we're talking about the two passions that take place that are juxtaposed in this particular week's reading, living between the Passion of Palm Sunday and the passion that Jesus experienced, the deep feeling that he experienced as he moved into his death. And so, Steve, why don't you go ahead and read for us the Liturgy of the Palms from Luke 19. I would love to do that. So this is from Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 40. After Jesus has said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he had come near Bethpage and Bethany, at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Just say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it as he has told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus. And after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. As he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. And as he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully and with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your, order your disciples to stop. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we've got a lot going on here in today's passage, mm. today's passages, but obviously we're just going to start with this one in Luke 19. And this is what we typically view as the Palm Sunday passage. It's, you know, at church where all the palm branches are spread out. The kids have their parades and the, <laughs> all the things are happening. But in real time in Jerusalem that day, uh, there's a lot of subtext going on here, isn't there, Ruth? I mean, there's yeah. this is the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem, and he enters into a crowd of people. It's like they're cheering, they're shouting, because finally the king has come to set everything right. The king has come to occupy his throne. The king that is coming from the line of David has come to set Israel back in its rightful place, to put it back in a place of power, even to destroy their enemies, 
Hosanna means save us, save us from our enemies. And so there's this joyful, exuberant crowd that really is cheering the king who comes riding in on a donkey that might have not been what they had expected, but still it was the Messiah that they believed would restore the fortunes of Israel. The only problem is <laughs> Jesus is not coming to Jerusalem to do what they thought. That's right. And this is the hard part about Palm Sunday, isn't it, Ruth? Yes, and I think it is really important to recognize that, of course, Palm Sunday is the beginning of Holy Week, and it, it all starts here. And there's this juxtaposition of different kinds of passion in this passage. We're having what we might consider to be the positive passion here, where everybody's all excited about Jesus. And yes, they are envisioning him the way they want to envision him, which is what we'll talk about. But then within a matter of days, the crowd is going to change and their passion is going to be darker and they are going to be crying out, crucify, crucify, crucify. And so we, we are mistaken if we take Palm Sunday out of the context of what this whole week really is because it's going to be this juxtaposition of two very different kinds of passion. And we're going to see how changeable the crowd is, which is very disturbing and uh, disorienting to realize how quickly they changed. And it, in churches that I've worshipped in, um, in the Anglican tradition in particular, we actually read both sets of passages on the same day. Wow. So that on the same day, on Palm Sunday, we are reading the Liturgy of the Palms, which is what you just described, Steve. And then later in that very same service, after the processional with the palms and all of that, um, in that very same service, then we switch and we read the Liturgy of the Passion, which is this, the very same crowd turning on Jesus and going into this sort of herd mentality and yelling, crucify him, crucify him, and sending him to his death. And when you're in a service like that, you can hardly keep up emotionally, mm-hmm. you know, and you can hardly believe that the very same people who greeted Jesus in this way on Palm Sunday uh, began to cry out these other sorts of things uh, uh, a few days later. And so eventually, hopefully today, you know, Steve will talk a little bit about the changeability of the crowd and how that can happen within us. Yeah. So maybe you can get us going by getting us started on what's happening here on Palm Sunday yeah. and what created this particular kind of passion. Well, I mean, I think we have to be honest about the context and people had so much pent up rage for the oppression that they were experiencing from Rome and before that, you know, Babylon and before that Persia and all that. The, the people of Israel had been able to worship in the way that they wanted to, but still under really severe oppression. And so they were, what they felt was coming and what they felt was due them was a Messiah that would, that would occupy a throne that would enable them to go back on top politically, socially. And that's really what they wanted. That's what they thought they were being saved for and saved from. And in a certain way, it's not surprising. I mean, I don't, I don't blame them, you know, for wanting that. I think I would probably want that too. The problem is that that's not the kind of kingdom that Jesus was coming to set up. And I think it's really difficult to put ourselves in this mm-hmm. crowd right here because yeah. we're, uh, we're just so convinced, most of us, that we're on the right side of, you know, we know who Jesus is. We, we don't put an agenda on Jesus other than that is other than the one that he sets for himself. But I think that's where we need to stop and say, in what ways 
do we, do you, do I create our own agenda and put it on Jesus and then make him the mascot for our agenda? We see that in politics, of course. Mm -hmm. We see that in some of the small things that we try to do in our churches. So I think it's worthy of stopping here and saying, in what ways do I put my agenda on the agenda of Jesus and have an expectation that he will be the kind of king that I want him to be versus the kind of king that he actually is? And that's the confrontation of Palm Sunday for me. Mm-hmm. And this was an issue for Jesus throughout his life. Yes. I mean, Peter, you know, we know that Peter really struggled to understand the kind of king that Jesus was going to be to the extent that he tried to get in the way of what God was doing, and Jesus had to say, get thee behind me, Satan. Yeah. Um, this was just an issue, be- and I think it's for all the reasons that you describe. The people wanted a different kind of king. They felt like they had been promised a different kind of king. I can, I can understand why it would yes. have been confusing for them, because so many of the Old Testament scriptures seem to indicate that it is going to be some sort of conquering king, you know, that the Messiah is going to be a conquering king who comes up and sets, sets up his own reign and his own empire. Um, so I, it's, you know, I can't even really blame them for no. not, not understanding what Jesus was coming to be and to do. There's even a theory about Judas Iscariot that, yes. that he it really believed Jesus was the guy, mm-hmm. but because he was a zealot, because the way he thought it was all going to happen was through a violent overthrow that his betrayal of Jesus was even a way to get the ball rolling in the right direction to cause a violent insurrection. And that, that he wasn't a faithless in Jesus. He just had a much different agenda than what Jesus had. Yeah. You know, there is something extremely sobering about Palm Sunday in, in for this reason. And that is that the people who were crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that they were so uninformed, really, about what was really happening. There was such deep misunderstanding of what was really going on. And so they were rallying around something that existed in their own heads, but wasn't real. You know, Jesus wasn't there to do the thing that they thought he was going to do. And so it makes me wonder, how often do we do that? How how often do we misunderstand what Jesus is really doing, but we think we know what Jesus is really doing? And so we have all the bells and the whistles and, you know, get it all <laughs> going. And we're mis- misunderstanding completely what Jesus is trying to do. It, it sobers me. It really, it really sobers me how we too can miss what Jesus is really all about in a particular moment. I agree, Ruth. And I wonder, does that have something to do with the response that the crowd has at the end of the week? You know, that when they realize, I mean, what do you think about that? Like what, how how are those two things connected in terms of when our agenda for Jesus turns out to not be Jesus's agenda and our response to that? I just think it demonstrates how changeable we are. Yeah. And how quickly we can be flipped. And really also sometimes how much we are kind of self-serving in the way that we view Jesus and try to appropriate Jesus to our purposes. It's kind of scary, you know. One of the areas that I see that is that I think oftentimes white Christians, you know, misappropriate Jesus into their own economic models and their own economic desires to the detriment of others so that others 
don't have much and they don't have what they need and we actually use Jesus to justify our activities and behaviors that you know help us to hang on yeah. to what we have yeah. versus sharing with what we have. I mean, Jesus talks so often about the poor in the New Testament, but we so rarely really make that the centerpiece unless it's the middle of unless it's a mission week or something like that. Mm-hmm. We don't highlight Jesus teaching about the poor. We attribute all sorts of other things to Jesus and his teachings, but there are many teachings of Jesus that we actually set aside and dismiss and don't even deal with fully because they're so uncomfortable right Mm -hmm. i'm I'm reading a book right now by father gregory boyle who wrote tattoos on the heart and others and he works for homeboy industries he founded it he works Mm -hmm. with a lot of gang members in la he's done so for 37 years and one of the things that he brings up is that injustice isn't what's wrong with the system it is the system (laughs) the system is unjust and he says an example of that is the covid that it was hard for everybody but some of us were experiencing covid on an ocean liner on the sea while Mm -hmm. others were experiencing it on you know a a life raft or even a piece of driftwood and typically the people that were experiencing it on the piece of driftwood were people of color in terms of how devastating how much more devastating it was and i think even as followers of christ as white followers of christ like are we ignorant of of that reality do we fight against that reality do we get defensive when we hear that do we get like oh wait that wasn't me that did that 400 years ago and yet when we read those teachings of jesus about the poor uh it's sobering for me and it's confrontive and i don't like that (laughs) i don't like it i think of mother Teresa who said uh, yes jesus is my spouse and sometimes he was a very difficult spouse to live with indeed So I think it does raise an important question, an important challenge for us, looking at the juxtaposition here, looking at Palm Sunday as the Sunday when everybody was cheering Jesus to be the king, and then looking later in the week when everybody, the very, very same group of people were yelling, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, that it does show how we try to make Jesus in our own image and how we misappropriate Jesus and his teachings to support what we want and what goes along with our dreams and visions versus who Jesus actually was. And so many different groups with differing positions actually use Jesus to their own ends. I think that's the disturbing thing that I see here. So, you know, there was nothing wrong, of course, with the fact that the Jewish people wanted to be freed and that they were angry about the oppression that they had experienced and that they were hoping for a king. And and a king like that had, a king had been promised who would set up a new kingdom that would be more fair and just. And let's make the point that the king, Jesus, the Messiah, always in the Old Testament was associated with justice and righteousness Mm -hmm. and equity, Mm -hmm. you know? So they were correct in having gotten that part of the point, you know? Right, right. That that the Messiah would come to bring justice to them. But they just were mistaken about how he was exactly going to do that. And when he didn't do it in the way that they thought that he would— then they were very happy to turn against him, it seems like, when he no longer fit with what they thought he would be doing, you know? Yeah, and that's a universally human response that we can, we should be able to see ourselves in that response. When we get disappointed Mm -hmm. with what we thought was going to happen, we've invested our lives in in this. We've, Mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden, no, that's not it. A natural response would be to get angry, to turn against and i think 
that's something to sit with too, you know, <laughs> and what do I do with that kind of disappointment? Yes. And how am I creating Jesus in my own image? How am I making him work for me versus really allowing myself to be challenged by the person that Jesus really was? Yeah. And I think that's very, very challenging. And I mean, I think that for us as leaders, let's, let's just name the temptation here. Yeah. The temptation is for us as leaders to use Jesus for our own agendas, right? Yes. Uh, to use Jesus' teaching, to use the person that Jesus was or that we see him to be, and to use the words of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus in ways that aren't even consistent with who Jesus actually was, but to do it for our own ends and for our own purposes. And this is, it's a devastating temptation, um, a devastating reality to think that Christian leaders might be those who do that you know, who use Jesus for our own ends and our own purposes to prop ourselves up, to prop up our own visions and agendas. And we've done that ever since the beginning, you know, like the the disciples all the way back to the disciples, you know, and so we can't, we cannot in any way think that we're above that or beyond it. One example that's in the way past, well, not that far in the past, was the way that the church used biblical teachings and teachings of Jesus to prop up their belief in slavery. And slavery was an economic reality. Slaves enabled, the whole slave system enabled white people to benefit from free labor. It was economic. And yet, yet, because we are, quote, Christian nation, Christians use the scriptures and certain, you know, really obscure phrases in scripture to support their belief in in slavery and it's it's just devastating and that has not stopped it has not stopped at all us you know using jesus for our own ends yeah and especially that's a great example i think one good question that especially white pastors should ask is in what ways am i marginalizing people groups and using the bible to do so probably implicitly rather than explicitly but in what ways am I doing that? Right. Not am I doing that? In what ways am I doing that? Yeah. Another thing that, you know, and this is Scott McKnight brings this up in his book, The Blue Parakeet, that to look at what scriptures we emphasize and teach about a lot and what are the scriptures yeah. we never teach about? <laughs> yes. What are the scriptures we never preach on? Yeah. Whoo, Steve, give me one. <laughs> well, is seriously, some of the oh. stuff about the poor, it's like yeah. even Luke 6, blessed are the poor. Mm-hmm. You know, we we translate that into poor in spirit. Of course, that's Matthew 5. Matthew 5 mm-hmm. is poor in spirit, and it's so much easier to say blessed are those who are poor in spirit than those who are poor. Um, you know, the, the, the passage about the rich young ruler, and of course, you know, we're quick yeah. to say, hey, this is not about, you know, this is not about your possessions probably. This is about what is it that you have to let go of. But what if it is about your possessions? Yeah, what if it you know, is? What That's if it, right. I don't, exactly. I mean, I don't like that. I am the king of metaphor when it comes to mm-hmm. preaching. Like, well, this is really probably yeah. a good metaphor. <laughs> yeah, that's not the truth. That's you just know? a metaphor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know? You know, and it sounds kind of cool and smart and slippery, but it's really. So I, I, I personally, those would be some passages that I tend to avoid. And, and um, I was around someone who does a lot of work in the prisons uh, recently. And she just said, when I'm around these inmates, I really feel like I'm connecting with Jesus in a way that I never have done in the church, you know, and that was instructive for me. So part of it is like, am I limiting 
the ways in which I, I think I even can see Jesus to, you know, to not include the poor. If I'm never around the poor, <laughs> am I really missing out on a real face of Jesus that I would otherwise wouldn't see? I mean, that's, that's a, that's a confrontation, I think for me anyway. Mm-hmm. So Ruth, if the temptation is to make Jesus the kind of king that you want him to be versus the kind of king he actually is, what are some practices that'll help us return to who he really is? Mm-hmm. Well, I think to steep ourselves in the gospels in this season, and we're in the book of Luke right now, um, but to read with a different set of eyes. And I even wondered if in this last few days, we might be willing to reflect on those parts of Jesus' life and teaching that we seem to avoid. Yeah. Would, be, would we be willing to face into them in this next few days and saying, saying to Jesus, would you show me who you really are? Go straight to the passages that we've avoided because we can't make sense of them or because they challenge us on too deep of a level, and then just sit and face them and really wonder what they mean. And even if you have to get out some commentaries or whatever, but to say, why, why do I avoid these passages? And what happens when I, when I sit with them and continue to face them versus just dismissing them? I think that could be really, really powerful. Another exercise, and now I'm really going out there. I think sometimes also we could actually do a little bit of work on the historic Jesus. Mm. You know, the gospels were written and they are inspired. There's no question about that. And, you know, there was time in between, yeah. too, yep. before there's, there were these interpretations of Jesus' life and ministry on the earth. And for me, I think when, when I get into a conversation like this, I'm really drawn to want to know who Jesus really is. Yeah. And to want to ask Jesus, would you challenge the places where I've made you in my image and where I've dismissed important teachings and where I've put my own meanings on some of your teachings that put, that get me off the hook, you know, or that get my tradition off the hook. And maybe we're deep enough into Lent now and we're tender enough and we've been in the wilderness long enough that we're not so defensive mm-hmm. and we don't have so much writing on how we interpret Jesus and we might be willing to learn something new by facing into those parts of Jesus' life and teachings that we work so hard to avoid that's a it's a really challenging one that is not a feel-good one right there (laughs) just so you know certainly not and i Uh, would take a little courage to do that and to go there can i add one more practice that might be helpful Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. i think it's you know as leaders so often we're in rooms where we're seen as the respected voice and authority we're just we just typically are and I wonder, you know, make it a practice to get in some rooms where you're not the respected authority and where, and where your viewpoint is not the dominant viewpoint, you know, even if it's sitting in a PTO meeting or something like that. But, but this is, you know, when you enter a room and no one knows you and no one knows that you're the authority, the voice of authority, something uncomfortable happens in you that's actually really instructive about maybe upending your own opinion as the only opinion. Yes, I agree. And even uh, notice what rises up within you. Yeah. Like, just pay attention. Uh, don't act out, but just notice what rises up within you as you listen and participate with groups who don't believe everything that you believe. That can be really instructive, too, just to notice what's happening inside. A lot of times, there's a lot of fear in there. What's underneath is often fear. 
So to pay attention to what am I afraid of by opening up to this? What am I, what am I afraid of by listening to this person and not defending? What am I afraid might happen? You know, and just notice fear in particular because that can, that can be extremely instructive yes. to notice. Well, as we close, I was thinking that this prayer from the lectionary for the Passion from Philippians 2, which is familiar to all of us, but I think it really does capture what we've been talking about. And it's really a call for us. It's the Apostle Paul's prayer for the people that he was writing to in Philippians, but I think we could receive it as Paul's prayer for us as well. So let's receive this prayer and hear what it has to say to us and particularly what Jesus might want to say to us and confirm for us as we walk into these holy days. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped or exploited. But he emptied himself taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Amen.